friends and enemies. It's episode 90 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. We got to get back in this podcasting groove. We took, 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 some, took a couple weeks off of recording, uh, coming back from break, fresh, ready to go, mm-hmm. having to set things back up again, remembering what it's like to podcast again. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we took a couple weeks off so we could refresh recharge but now we're entering august and this this is tmk sweeps month i'm gonna give y'all a little preview of what's to come because we got we got some big stuff happening this month you're gonna want you're gonna want to subscribe you're gonna want to listen you don't want to tell all your friends about it uh because it, it, it's, it's popping over at tmk now so we got a great episode coming up today uh, we're going to talk about a little uh, you know some some new stories um, that we that we missed, that we didn't get a chance to talk about. You know, we're going to look at that uh, big report in Motherboard Vice about ShotSpotter um, just to start things off. But then we're going to really dive into a big topic right now around uh, precision agriculture and smart farming. But, you know, that so that that's just the TMK boys hitting you with a, a nice easing back into the month, you know, uh, this week. But coming up later this month, next week, we got... Hyper visible, Chris Gilliard on Twitter, uh, who you know, just just one of the best, one of mm-hmm. the best watchers of the watchers around. Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody, nobody around that 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 keeps a closer eye on what's happening in surveillance, thinks more deeply about surveillance. Uh, so that I mean, that's going to be a really fucking banger episode talking about luxury surveillance. This amazing concept that he's come up with has written an essay about. That that's that's gonna be that's gonna be a really fun episode. Then the week after that, we got Taylor Lorenz coming on, the 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 queen of the creator economy. Nobody watches the creator economy closer than Taylor Lorenz. Nobody makes uh, the fucking uh, dirt bags and scum bags in Silicon Valley more angry <laughs> than <Right>. Taylor Lorenz. <laughs> uh, that's going to be so fun. And that's, that's an episode that's a long time coming. Um, and then, and then, oh, oh, you thought that was it? Oh, you thought, you thought, no. And then after that, we're going to have a, we're going to have a friend of the show, Salome Villune back on with Meredith Whitaker. Uh, to talk about uh, me, Salome, and Meredith wrote, uh, uh, if I do say so myself, a really good piece. Um, a really in nature. good piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. Thank you, fam. Uh, a really good piece in Nature, um, arguing why uh, data should be treated as a public good 
and managed by public institutions um, as this kind of collective resource. So, you know, taking it out of the hands of private capital and putting it in the hands of the collective uh, for democratic governance of data. That's going to be a really, really fun episode. Just diving deep into that diving deep into all the stuff that was left on the cutting room floor around like data construction, around these, uh, you know, legal and institutional responses to data. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about things that the FTC and Lena Khan is doing as well, because, you know, the, the uh, you know, there, there's some real possibilities here around, you know, the things that we argue need to happen uh, in our nature piece, you know, actually getting put on the pathway towards happening. So mm -hmm. that that's you know, so we we got we got the rest of this month is just gonna be straight banger after banger after banger. You know, we we come back from break so that we can hit you even harder. That's gonna be great. You know, these are all of these are people we've wanted to have a long time now to talk about specific things. You know, we wanted we had an idea early on to talk with Taylor about the political economy of the creator um world because i think that's you know how how the structure of you know agencies of houses of the geographies and the networks of talent and management uh structure you know the real material and also ide the ideas around and the social and the cultural realities that these influencers move through right and what gets replicated and what doesn't and you know chris Oh, we've wanted, you know, like you said, the luxury surveillance essay is really great. And Chris has been doing really great analysis also on, on this work. And also like a lot of interesting ideas that we can talk about too, with like, in terms of stuff you can just do in your everyday life and thinking more also about things you can do in, in your everyday life to jam or undermine surveillance or denormalize it. You know, I think one of those you know, easiest examples is the fact that Chris does not put his picture up, right? Does not participate in like video chats for any of these, uh, for communications online. That's a very, and like clearly if you ask, we'll explain that that is because like there's really no need to normalize the idea that your image should always be accessible and present, right? To some audience that you don't really even know the composition of without your consent. And that's, just, and that's like a small move that in of itself, I think is a huge idea and she needs to be embraced more and thought about how else to apply it. Right. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the, you know, the group that we're going to be having on at the end of that, at the end of sweeps month, um, this idea of data as a public good, you know, I think also even among the people who accept it, there's not, there hasn't been like really a lot of articulation except in a few ways about what that looks like or the articulations veer way too close to commodification. And I think like, Oh, it's going to be really exciting. And I'm like, y'all should really read the essay if you haven't already in nature, the common in nature, um, because it is like a good thing to think about and let, you know, uh, what's the word, a fester in your mind, but fester sounds like negative or the positive version of fester in your mind, right? <laughs> <laughs> Germinate. Um, <laughs> you know, and out of the conversation that we're going to have with everybody. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, and then on the premium feed as well, cause you know, this is all going to be free. Cause we want you guys to have that. We want you guys to have access to these awesome conversations we're having with these guests. But then on the premium feed, we're going to be wrapping up our book club of uh, Langdon Winner's Autonomous Technology with the last chapter, chapter eight. And this, you know, this is the, I think the best chapter 
of the whole book because this is the and and what what should we do about it how should we think about it chapter and this is where winner is coming out with these ideas of technology as legislation um, which is you know hugely influential we've talked about it a lot right understanding technology as a political phenomenon as a form of legislation in life uh, in the way that you know a lot of technologies have more effect on our lives, on structuring our lives, on governing society, than most laws ever do. And so, you know, that's that's not just an analogy. That's more like direct, no, this is a form of legislation. But then on top of that, Langdon Winter then proposes this idea of Luddism as epistemology in that chapter. You know, something else. I, I think I think when we when we discuss that chapter, you will see the whole you'll see the ones and zeros of the whole TMK ethos mm-hmm. uh, emerging from that one chapter in this book from 50 years ago. <laughs> so that that's gonna be sick. Uh, and we're we're just gonna have a lot more discussion in depth coming. And then I think we will probably, you know, I'll say it now. We're going to cap the month off uh, with, you know, Ed's got a Ed's got a big investigative piece that's coming out soon, looking at the crypto casinos. And uh, I think we're going to cap the month off with a discussion of 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 all the investigation and reporting Ed's been doing for this big story that's coming out. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Keep your ears to the TMK feed. Uh, August is, is just, you know, we, we haven't even reached our peak yet. Uh, August is sweet, baby. That's going to be great for free. So much good stuff for free and so, and so much even better stuff for only $5 a month at patreon.com slash this machine kills, uh, a bargain at any price. (laughs) If I say so, if we say so ourselves, right? I think that's That's a pretty good bargain. (laughs) <laughs> I think we need to move on before we start becoming capitalists. Before we get into the main topic of this of this week's episodes, you know, really looking at uh, a bunch of research and, and, and analysis of precision agriculture and smart farming and data grabbing and stuff like that. Before we get into that, I do want to talk a little bit about this big uh, scoop uh, in Motherboard Vice on the shot spotter. The sh- you know, shot spotter are these you know AI powered you know quote unquote AI powered microphone and sensor uh, arrays um, that police use all over the U.S. Um, to detect you know quote unquote detect gunshots. Right? They're supposed to be ways of of of, of uh, capturing you know loud sounds that are within the decibel range of a gunshot. And using that to kind of pinpoint, you know, where a gunshot is happening uh, so that, you know, police can then uh, reduce their response time and therefore reduce crime rates, deter, you know, gun crime and violent crime um, using, you know, weapons like that. that that's how they, that's how ShotSpotter is, is sold. But, you know, tell us a little bit about what, what 
your colleagues at Motherboard Vice have actually found about how ShotSpotter is being used. Right. So this is a story that comes to us from Todd Feathers. Um, same name. You can also find him on Twitter. He's really good. Uh, freelancer that w- and reporter in this space, writer in this space about surveillance, right? And all the sort of nonsense that goes on with surveillance um, that works with us pretty closely. And the report, the writing that he does here is basically that in Chicago, right? Using Chicago as an example, but then zooming out in Chicago, prosecutors have, you know, they had a case against someone uh, insisting that they murdered this 25-year-old, that they shot him in the head, right? And in, in actuality, the evidence that was used to prove um, he was um, done so, he did so, right, was uh, false um, and was like falsified evidence, right? Um, and so to back up a little bit, right, or and, and also to add that this implicates other uh, convictions and other cases, right, that are pending or going to be pending or, you know, that might be overturned because of this fabricated evidence, Right. So last year, right, you find, you know, this, our, the story kind of opens up talking about this um, 25-year-old Safarian Herring, right, who was shot in the head. He was dropped off at St. Bernard Hospital in Chicago uh, by a man, um, and then two days later died. And so the police charged the man, a 64-year-old, uh, Michael Williams, with the murder, saying that he um, was the one who shot Herring. Williams said that Herring was hit in a drive-by, and so a key piece of evidence in the case is video surveillance footage showing Williams' car stopped at the 6300 block of South Stony Island at 11.46 p.m., and that's the time and location where police say they know Herring was shot, right? The only problem is that that's not true. That night, 19 shot spotter sensors detected a percursive sound at 11.46 p.m., and determined the location to be 5700 South Lakeshore Drive, which is a mile away from the site where prosecutors say Williams committed the murder, right? And so the company's algorithms initially classified the sound as a firework. And that weekend had seen widespread protests in Chicago in response to George Floyd's murder, and some of those protesting lit fireworks. But after the 11.46 p.m. Uh, alert came in, a shot spotter analyst manually overrode the algorithms reclassified the sound as a gunshot. And then months later, and after post-processing, another shot spotter analyst changed the alert's coordinates to a location on South Stony Island Drive near where Williams' car was seen on camera, right? And so this immediately undermines the the, um, prosecution's case, right? But it's also opened up... um, or revealed to us that there's a pattern that's been going on, right? Um, because, well, first of all, shot is used pretty widely, right, in Chicago. I think um, the, right, the report said that it's about 21,000 alerts each year, each year mm-hmm. in Chicago, right? And it's in use in um, 100 cities. But a review of the cases there, a review of the court documents for the Williams case, and then other trials across Chicago and New York State, and then testimony from the expert that ShotSpotter uses the most, their favorite expert witness, uh, shows that the company's analysts are basically regularly expected to and asked to modify alerts at the request of police departments, um, either changing coordinates or reclassifying sounds so that they show gunshots where they need them to be to support um, flimsy accusations, uh, narratives, for, um, you know, ideas about what actually happened, right? And so... All of this is compounded by the fact that you can't really, it's incredibly hard to review this 
um, you know, these reports or to dispute them or to challenge them. And at every t- uh, every step of the way, you know, in retrospect, it looks like the state has been lying actively to defend police departments or the police departments have been lying actively and not telling anyone that they've been fabricating and modifying evidence that they're using to prove this person did a crime or that person did a crime. Mm-hmm. In fact, I, I, and one thing I should add is that when confronted with all this, um, you know, uh, their, one of their vice presidents said a really kind of ridiculous thing, right? So this is a senior vice president for marketing and product st- strategy at ShotSpotter. And he said, you know, one, uh, the company has no reason to believe that the prosecution's decision, you know, uh, to uh, undermine um, or to, you know, withdraw that evidence says that the technology is bad, right? And in fact, he's saying that even though it's been admitted in like 190 court cases, that you shouldn't also you shouldn't really trust the data, right? He says whether shot spotter evidence is relevant to a case is a matter left to the discretion of a prosecutor and the counsel for a defendant. Shot spotter has no reason to believe that these decisions are based on a judgment about the shot spotter technology, right? So, you know, that both covers their ass or is an attempt to cover their ass. Um, and saying that, look, you know, like um, they don't want to use the technology, but it works for everyone else. But it's also saying, like, if it happens to be the case that a lot of these cases, a lot of the evidence is fabricated, look, what are you doing using our evidence? It's you're supposed to consider it with everything else. You're not supposed to rely on it, especially <laughs> if it's fabricated, right? Yeah, this was the haha, I'm just joking. Right. Defense, right? Like, <laughs> oh, oh, y'all, oh, oh, y'all thought that that evidence was real? Ah, uh, we were just playing it. We were just playing a prank on you. They was just joking. It's your own fault for taking it serious, or, 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 ha, uh, or, or maybe, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, Todd Feathers, you know, the reporter who wrote this, who wrote this story, um, got a quote from. Jonathan Maines, who's a, an attorney at the MacArthur Justice Center, who has, you know, I think really nailed it here as well, where he says, quote, rather than defend the evidence, prosecutors just ran away from it. Right now, nobody outside of ShotSpotter has ever been able to look under the hood and audit this technology. We wouldn't let forensic crime labs use a DNA test that hadn't been vetted and audited. And, the, and this was revealing too, right? Because, you know, this is what kind of cracked open this whole black box is the, the, a public defender, it must be said, right? A public defender for the, the murder case against, uh, against Williams. As, as the public defender said, quote, through this human involved method, the shot, shot spotter output in this case was dramatically transformed from data that did not support criminal charges of any kind to data that now forms the centerpiece of the prosecution's murder case against Mr. Williams. So here we have a public defender who's doing, doing the Lord's work here of actually being like, how does this technology work? You know, let me get under the black box. Let me look under the hood. And oh, what we see here is all this data is just fake. It's constructed, right? It's just, it's just, it's whatever you want it to be. I mean, this is, this is damning, right? This is so damning and so revealing of how a technology like this actually works. And the fact that, yeah, I mean, this is just one case in Chicago, but how many other cases are like this, right? You know, considering, as you said, right, 
ShotSpotter generates an average of 21,000 alerts each year in Chicago alone. It's used in more than a hundred cities. It's also really expensive, this technology. Like, like cities and police departments are spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for subscription services to ShotSpotter. Right. And they get their money's worth. They get their money's worth because they're not using this. They're not paying for this technology to do anything like AI powered, uh, you know, monitoring and blah, blah. No, they're, they're, the whole purpose of paying for this technology is to fabricate evidence. I, I think that we have, I, I, I'm, I'm willing to go on record to say that is a primary purpose of this technology. So in that sense, the police are getting their money's worth. Yeah. I mean, like when you look at any of these studies, I mean, look, the, um, you know, ShotSpotter has said that it's, it, it's claimed, it claims basically their accuracy has gone from 80% uh, to 97%, right? Wh- who is creating those numbers? Is it the engineers? No. Is it the police departments? No, it's the fucking sales and marketing team, right? <laughs> okay. Disregard that number then. There is a study in May by the MacArthur Justice Center that we just mentioned that said that over a 20 month period, 89% of the alerts that the technology generated in Chicago led to no evidence of a gun crime. And 86% of the alerts led to no evidence of a crime that had been committed at all, right? And so, I mean, like you can, you can go on and on with this, right? There's research that there's a huge body of research that's growing that suggests that, you know, what it does not matter where ShotSpotter is deployed. It does not lead to any decrease in gun crime, right? And that there's a reason why uh, multiple customers have dropped the technology, quote, citing too many false alarms and the lack of return on investment, right? A recent study in uh, St. Louis uh, of ShotSpotter said that ShotSpotter has, quote, little deterrent impact on gun-related violent crime in St. Louis. Automated gun detection systems also do not provide consistent reductions in police response time, nor aid substantially in producing actionable results. Right. And of course, the senior vice president disputed these, saying that uh, the study's conclusions do not reflect what we see, blah, blah, blah. He pointed to a 2021 study by the New York University School of Law's policing project that determined that assaults, which include some gun crime, decreased by 30% in some districts in St. Louis County after ShotSpotter was installed. The study authors disclosed that ShotSpotter has been providing the policing project unrestricted funding since 2018. That ShotSpotter's CEO sits on the policing project's advisory board, and that ShotSpotter has previously compensated policing project researchers. So do with that as you will about the quality of that, about, or maybe not even the quality, just about whether you can, you know, seriously take that study and compare it to the, all, you know, the growing body of evidence that's suggesting ShotSpotter is actually has no real benefit for the community. But as Jathan, as you said, every benefit for police departments that are interested in fabricating evidence. There's bootlicking, and then there's putting the whole damn thing in your mouth. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you gotta have a buffet with you gotta make love to the boot with your mouth. I mean, in some of these cities, right? And it's and, it, and it's like you know, a lot of money is on the line here. Right? Chicago is one of the biggest cities in Spotswatter's um, portfolio. It's New York City, then it's Chicago, right? Chicago accounts for thirteen percent of the company's revenue. 13%. And it has a $33 million contract with the company that's coming to an end, right? And so by August, by this month, they have to decide whether or not to renew it. It's going to be a little hard to renew it 
right? If uh, there's public sentiment that it's bullshit and that it's actually fabricating evidence and that this is also a problem because at the same time, there's new research coming out. There's, you know, as Todd writes, there's new research, rise in shootings, cases like the Williams and uh, Godinez, which was a, another trial in which uh, shot spotter uh, fabricated evidence in New York State, um, and tragedies that have promoted renewed criticism of the technology. It was a shot spotter alert in the early morning hours of March 29th that dispatched police to a street in a little village where they eventually shot and killed 13-year-old Adam Toledo, who was unarmed at the time. That and other recent events have sparked a new campaign by community and civil rights groups in Chicago calling on city officials to drop shot spotter, right? I think that, you know, as we've talked before on the show, especially about the, uh, the connection between, um, you know, large technology companies and police departments, a lot of the time, you know, when you really sit down and look at the deployment of tech, you know, technical systems, they don't actually reduce crime. And they're, they're using data that in of itself is racist, right? Because it bakes in segregation and it bakes in like, in, you know, inequality, uh, whether it's access to resources, access to education, access to, you know, social support systems, access to housing, all of these things that, you know, in of themselves reduce crime much more, right? It, it, it captures inequities far better than it actually does what, when a crime is happening, why is a crime happening? And again, all of this, you know, doesn't actually result in a reduction of crime. It just results in an expansion of the budget for the thing, right? Because they say, either they say, oh, it didn't work. We needed more of it. It didn't work because we didn't use it widely enough. We didn't integrate it furtherly, uh, big enough. We didn't like, you know, figure out this cool fix that requires a hundred million more dollars and 10 million more dollars or one billion more dollars. Or, you know, if you do expand it and it, they, they can say, oh, actually it did work. And then they'll fabricate something or they'll provide contrived evidence that it is working. And since it's working, you need even more. There's never, ever a thing like, oh, it's not working. So you need to, maybe you should stop buying us. It's always, you need to buy more of us. Yeah, no, ex exactly. And, and, you know, it's worth mentioning because it's relevant that Adam Toledo, the little boy who ended up being shot and killed because of a shot spotter uh, alert, you know, sending police there was a little Latino boy. Right. Which I think also just shows a pattern of the racial this, you know, discrimination and segregation and, and operations of these technologies. Right. Do you, I mean, we don't know. Right. We don't know because we don't have access to the data. But you know, just ask yourself, do you think the shot spotter sensors are equally spread out throughout white and upper class neighborhoods? Oh, we do know in Chicago. In Chicago, every, almost every single, I think except for like four or five, almost every single community of color has a shot spotter and almost none of the white neighborhoods have shot spotters. They, I mean, there you go, right? And and if and if and if they were gonna do the whole like, uh, you know, actually we're gonna do equality of policing here by putting shot spotters in in, in white neighborhoods too. Do you think that those uh, alerts, you know, captured by shot spotter would be categorized as a gunshot, or do you think they might be categorized as a as a firework yeah. or a car backfiring, right? You know, Tom uh, Todd Todd did another good report on this. Um uh, Mid-July, about how in four cities that the uh, motherboard, you know, he looked at data for four cities. Um, was it Kansas City, Missouri, Cleveland, Ohio, Atlanta, Georgia, and Chicago? Uh, shot spotters are almost exclusively deployed in majority black and brown neighborhoods. Um, and almost none of them 
in white neighborhoods, right? There's this uh, another, you know, Jonathan Maines from the MacArthur Justice uh, Center said the system is telling police that every time they go out in response to a shot spotter alert, they should assume that anybody in the vicinity is armed and they're just fired a weapon, right? Um, the system is telling off police officers that anybody in the area is a mortal threat. Following up on those alerts is creating a dangerous situation, and it's happening 61 times a day in the city of Chicago, right? This is similar to what we talked about with Predpol very early on in the show, right? They create these little red boxes, and everything that happens there, and everyone who enters that box is already classified as a threat, as a criminal, as a mortal uh, danger, right? It's a potentially fatal danger to the police officer, no matter what they're doing, right? And I mean, speaking of Predpol, I learned, uh, av- you know, after tweeting about this um, from uh, Aaron Shapiro, who's uh, uh, a professor of technology studies at UNC and has done a lot of really great work on um, on urban policing and predictive policing and things like that. I learned that ShotSpotter bought HunchLab, and HunchLab is another one of these companies, like pre- mm. uh, another one of these predictive policing companies that yeah. you know famously uh, not only tries, not only uses like um, you know uh, past crime rates and stuff like that to to def- you know predict future crime rates, but it also looks at things like like the phases of the moon. Uh, you know, it looks at all, it looks at, it, it tries to incorporate all possible data to create, as their fucking name says, hunches about where crime <laughs> happens, but then selling it as prediction, as foresight, as some kind of crystal ball. I mean, that, that, that right there is fucking telling as well that ShotSpider bought one of these major predictive policing startups um, and rolled it into their company, right? So it, it, it's all just a fucking ecosystem of violence. That's what it is, right? It's an it's a, a ecosystem of violence smuggled through data. And, and you know, pour, pour one out. For the fucking bozos out here who repeatedly assert that, you know, well, actually data is an objective measure of truth and an unbiased reflection of reality. Therefore, you know, if if the police are smarter, then they'll be uh, fairer and more just. Of course. No, no, no. (laughs) But dude, (laughs) wrong. These are the same dickheads that say that, well, you know, if uh, companies made more money, then they would pay their employees more money. Right. Right. As, as they always do. As they always have. It's just like, you should give, you should give law enforcement the benefit of the doubt they're doing this in, in their best interest. No. They're fucking roving packs of gangs with badges and guns who think they can do anything they want. And then they've got ShotSpotter who will corroborate any information they want to justify anything they do. I mean, quite literally, too. There's been some some good reporting. I forget the woman's name. I'm so sorry, but uh, uh, a a young Latinx journalist in Los Angeles who's been doing a lot of interesting uh, research and reporting on the sheriff gangs in Los Angeles, where the sheriff's departments actually do have these internal gangs. Uh, that operate like gangs, like they have patches and colors, they jump people in, they require people to like, you know, kill other people in order to be members of the sheriff's gang. Uh, And so quite literally packs of roving gangs. Oh, also her name is uh, Cersei Castle. Cersei Castle, thank you. Um, so, So, I mean, her research and reporting on the sheriff's gangs of Los Angeles are... Uh, amazing and also very harrowing she 
uh, quite literally has to wear a bulletproof vest and has to hire um, bodyguards uh, to protect herself because she has a target on her back by these sheriff's gangs um, for revealing this information, for doing this reporting and this research. research. Going back to these bozos who think that data is some kind of like raw resource that you find, you know, you just stumble upon it in the wild and you just be like, ah, shit, I just found this whole like this this vein of untouched data here. And, uh, oh, I can't wait to find out all the truth it holds. Right. right. It's like, no, what what the shot spider case shows us through and through is a very simple fact that uh, that that is very easy to understand, yet goes so often uh, 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 misunderstood or overlooked, is that all data is constructed, right? Those mm-hmm. who control the data pipeline, um, you know, the the creation of data, the analysis of data, the implementation of that data, those who control the data pipeline can and often do create and emphasize the data that fits their own interest and their own goals and delete or ignore the data that does not, right? This, this, is, this is confirmation bias taken at the scale of, of big data. But this is not hard to understand that all data is a construct, but, what it, but, but to understand it, it requires thinking about the politics of data to see it in action. And, and that's, that's what the shot spotter case really shows us here. Right. I mean, and they understand it, right? I mean, they understand it. That's why they, they're eager to use data as a weapon, data as a tool when in the suit, because they understand that, you know, modifying it is easy enough to achieve some outcome. Right. Mm. Whether it's uh, throwing someone in jail, right, or um, successfully arguing or making a case for the expansion of this technology or patrols in this area or what have you. Right. Uh, Because data is not some objective measure. It's generated and it's constructed, like you were saying. And in these instances, when they needed to be generating, constructed to suggest one thing, they do it. And a lot of these tech companies, they pretend that they're neutral arbiters. They pretend that they're just places where people go to connect, they go to exist, they go to perceive each other, they go to buy or to uh, sell services and goods and information, when in reality, it's a it's a topography, right? There's, a, there's, a, there's all sorts of layers, there's all sorts of already existing actors, there's all sorts of geographies that limit or expand the autonomy of some people and, or the agency of others. And to pretend that like platforms or tech companies and whatever they offer are just neutral, immaculate uh, commodities or platforms or mediums or n- networks is uh, is a constructed narrative. It's a myth. Mm-hmm. It's bullshit. It's, it has no basis in reality. And the, and it's smuggled through all these different ways. I mean, going back to the the, the series of conflicts of interest you laid out, the way that Shotspotter provides unrestricted funding to the policing project, its CEO sits on the board of the pro, of, of the policing project, right? Like. This is so common as well, where you you see. Look, if you're a if you're a researcher, you know, researching something like policing, for example, and the funding for your research and the data that you analyze for that research comes from a, a company like Shotspotter or in the gig economy, right? If it comes from Uber, if your funding and and uh, data comes from Uber, or you know, just name any other sector. If your funding that for your research and the data that you're analyzing for your research comes from a company with an interest in that sector, 
I'm sorry, you were smuggling, you were just doing reputation smuggling. You know, that's all that you're doing, right? They're paying yeah. you to provide studies uh, for, to, to bolster their own reputation. Uh, it, it's, it's simple, right? It's a very simple political economy of research and data that's happening here. And if you follow the money, uh, the, the, the conflicts of interest just lay themselves bare. Uh, and we can't stick our heads in the sand about it. Right, right. You know, we have to get rid of big tech and the police departments, right? They're, they're partners in crime, as we've talked about many times. And all of these things, they are their impetus. And the political economy of the world that they've created is just like profit at the expense of everyone else, garner agency and autonomy at the expense of everyone else, right? And proliferate at the expense of everyone else. Mm-hmm. There's no place for that. Yeah. One, one more point on this, and then, and then we'll move on to our, our, our next segment in this episode. But I, I, had a, I had a small thread about this on Twitter, so I'll, but I'll, I'll recap it here. Where I was, I was thinking back years ago about the, about the privacy debates uh, when ShotSpotter was rolled out. You know, I remember this. I remember when ShotSpotter was rolled out. Um, and I was like, it was like I was deep in my research on smart cities. So it was a big thing, right? Uh, and I remember the privacy debates back then, which I, you know, participated in as well, um, really focused on the use of these sensors uh, as, as potentially being used as like listening devices, right? I mean, there were actually reports at that time of, you know, ShotSpotter not just recording you know, these loud decibel sounds like gunshots or fireworks or car backfires, um, but like of conversations, right? And, and so there was, a, you know, a lot of the privacy debates focused on that, like, oh, are we filling our cities with listening devices that could re- record things like loud conversations happening on a street corner? The, the critics even at that time largely took for granted that the systems operate uh, are as accurate and automated as the marketing departments of the companies claim that they do, right? That they are quote-unquote AI powered, that they're automated, that they are accurate. But it's now clear um, through this uh, reporting by Todd Feathers and Motherboard Vice, it's now clear that we should have focused a lot more on these questions of data construction by analysts, right? How are certain interests and purposes uh, imposed on and justified by the data that ShotSpotter claims to record? You, if we think about this, what's, what's even more worrying than you know, a bunch of sensors spread throughout the city? It's their forensic use as pretense for fake evidence, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just that we've got these sensors spread throughout the city, but they are through the magic of data creating, you know, fake evidence, fake recordings or modified recordings from thin air. And, you know, this to me raises a number of questions, uh, which I think also gets, you know, we unlocked the Potemkin AI episode last week. The Shotspider case raises a number of questions that we talked about in that Potemkin AI episode around like what claims about how systems operate now are we taking for granted, right? How, how are our current debates about technology and politics built on faulty premises that obscure the real processes and politics at play? I think these are still very serious problems. I think that there is still a serious problem of critics of technology largely taking 
the marketing of technology for granted as true, as, as true representations of how these systems operate. But the reality of the fact is, is that ShotSpotter, like so many other things that we talked about in our Unlocked episode, is also a form of P- Potemkin AI. It might have some AI, uh, you know, AI software there that's doing some kind of, uh, uh, you know, automated analysis and recording and stuff. But that is always subject to the overriding of some kind of human-involved method, right? A human in the loop, an analyst who can go back and uh, and 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 edit, edit the recording, um, edit the coordinates, edit that data to present a picture of reality that they want or that the police want, right? I mean, I think these are still very serious problems that we have to confront when we, when we look at the, the politics of technology and the processes of these systems, right? If you think the purpose of, of, of a technology like ShotSpotter is to reduce crime rates or police response times, rather than give police another source of data to warp for their own ends, to create their own vision of reality, then, then buddy, I, I've got a, I've got a ticket to Mars to sell you. All right, yeah. jump in my DMs and I'll, I'll, I'll let you know the price. Twenty-eight million would be my price. I don't know what Jathan's going to sell it for, but twenty-eight million dollars <laughs> is what I'm asking. We went long on that, but it's worthwhile. I mean, the, the, right. it's just amazing reporting by Todd mm-hmm. Feathers there and Motherboard Vice. Um, more of that reporting that we need, really cracking open the black box of these systems to show uh, to show what uh, not not a bunch of uh, arbiters of truth and AI and automation and advanced technology. Nah, nah, it's the same old shit of conflicts of interest, of certain certain values and purposes being, uh, you know, superseding others, right? Of, of people changing, you know, the pictures of reality to fit what they want it to be. Exactly, right? And that's how it's going to be for a while until we get rid of all these shit, or at least shift ownership of it, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, the takeaway from the shot spotter investigation is not like, oh, this is a this wow, what a neat technology. If only it had more oversight and accountability right. built into it. Right. No, nah, the takeaway is fucking tear that shit out, right? Dismantle yeah. it, deconstruct it, grind it into dust. Uh, we don't need it. It's 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 a it's a it's an economy of violence. <laughs> Let's jump into uh, what we're going to talk about for the rest of this episode, and we'll get even deeper into in the in the premium episode over on the Patreon feed. I think it's worthwhile to to focus on something that we haven't really talked a lot about, but is a is a huge sector um, in in you know in smart technology and a lot of these things that you know that we've talked about the political economy of technology uh, around agriculture and farming. I've been reading for a few years now these like you know journal articles uh, really looking at this concept of precision agriculture and the techno politics of it, um, the political economy around it. From this, I really want to give a shout out to the work of uh, of a geographer at Maynooth University in Ireland named Alistair Fraser, who since about at least on my radar since 2018 has been writing a series of really great uh, essays looking at precision agriculture as 
this new what he calls a form of data grab, right? In the in the kind of tradition of the the old land grabs of of you know the old colonial land grabs, old corporate land grabs um, of like you know rural land of farmland, um, largely in the global south, but also of course in the you know the U.S. and Europe, right? The the, the so-called global north. Um, and the ways in which, like, these new systems of precision agriculture and smart farming are, are, are playing into replicating, reproducing, amplifying, intensifying all the verbs uh, <laughs> uh, of these, like, very, you know, longstanding traditional forms of, like, uh, of, uh, of value grabbing, of land enclosure. I think it's worth... Talking through some of uh, uh, Alistair Frazier's work on this, you know, bringing in some other stuff to kind of give us a primer um, of another sector that is being subjected to a lot of these same kind of logics and political economies that we've that we talk about so often on TMK. I mean, this shit is global in scale, right? There is just like there is just like no part of the world that has been left untouched. Um, by uh, by these technologies and by the politics embedded in them, by corporations uh, that uh, you know increasingly see themselves as you know quote unquote tech companies or where data is the business model, right? All of them, sadly. You know, and I think it's also really it's really interesting. You know, one thing uh, reading these uh, reports that we went through, right about about land grabs through agriculture, right? It was, uh, um, you know, I have not myself thought really much about how this sort of occurs, right? About the fact that something as simple as introducing analytics into agriculture is sufficient to use to change um, and justify new types of ownership or to, you know, dispossess people of land or to impose like new barriers or new burdens on them to um um to like buy into or loan or you know or, or acquire lines of credit or enter into new arrangements right that just make them further and further and further subservient to this supposedly efficient distant baseless emotionless efficiency machine right Mm-hmm. That is uh, growing, growing, growing at the expense of their own livelihoods and at the expense, honestly, of like the ecology because, you know, as mm-hmm. we'll talk about, right, it's not really clear that any of this is really um, going to help long term with um, climate change, as some of them suggest, is increasing food production so much as like more hordes of data to one day be analyzed and commodified contribute to the to the nightmarish apocalyptic doomsday scenario of nature being an asset in the fucking market. <laughs> uh, one of one of Ed's bugbears as should be one of, one of as should be all of our bugbears. Uh, and we will absolutely uh, be doing an episode focused uh, on this idea of nature as an asset. I just um, see red when I think about it. Uh, <laughs> that's that's going to be an angry episode. We 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 got that one in the works, and we got a perfect guest, a political ecologist and friend of mine. Uh, give him a shout, Patrick Bigger, um, who's just been do- who's done some of the best work on this idea of nature as an asset. 
uh, right? As a, as a new asset class. That's how we're going to solve climate change, Ed. We're going to solve climate change by making nature into an asset. I saw this meme and Jeremy just referenced it in a chat where it's a human talking to a gorilla and the human's like, oh, you're so stupid. You just like bananas. And then the ape is like, you're the only animal on this planet that pays to live. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. I think about that all the time. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, uh, Alistair Frazier, you know, talking about this this uptick of precision agriculture, this is something that's been going on since like the 90s, right? I mean, in short, it's like, you know, precision agriculture is the use of all the kinds of technologies that we talk about constantly on TMK, but used for farming and agriculture, but of course, at these like massive scales. Um, you know, it, as he describes it, as Frazier describes it, quote, many of these developments use complex algorithms, lines of software code, proliferating sensors, and numerous computational model- models to generate, crunch, build on, and roll out data about human agricultural practices, the lives of animals, and the biophysical qualities of land. Sent to the cloud and then stored and manipulated in data farms, in essence, warehousing uh, warehouses storing data on computer servers, this new source of information about food production excites commentators on and observers of food production systems and even leads some to anticipate that precision agriculture and big data will be the next driver of the next or the driver of the next revolution in agriculture. Of course, you know, there's all the hype and stuff, but but it's being made real through companies like Monsanto, which, you know, was bought by Bayer, um, but still kind of operates as Monsanto, um, using these technologies, yeah, to push forward, right? Like, this will be, uh, as Frazier has called it, right, the, the digital revolution in agriculture. We had the green revolution, right? The green revolution brought to us by uh, GMOs, right, through genetic engineering, through biotechnology. You know, that was the green revolution of agriculture. But now, through the use of AI, you know, sensors, analytics, the cloud, server, you know, the server farm is going to usurp the 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 traditional farm right like this is going to be the digital revolution of agriculture the political economy of this is really interesting i mean you know spoiler alert it mirrors everything we've ever talked about when we were like what what do you what do you need to think when you hear the word digitalization or digital revolution Right. Privatization. Right. By <laughs> large corporations. Right. Mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine. I mean, even if you just think about it for a second, I mean, it's hard to imagine anyone but a corporation doing it because the way that it's run today, I mean, the only ones with the institute, the only ones with the capacity, right, to carry out some massive project that digitizes everything are private corporations because of how much of all this infrastructure from the computational infrastructure to the analytic infrastructure is privately held, right? The state can't do it. The state doesn't even own the resources. In fact, most businesses don't even own the resources. They lease them from like, you know, a few major uh, companies that already dominate most of the economy, you know, like it's just privatization, no matter what type of gloss they put on it. And and, I mean, this also makes me think as well. uh, I I, I think it was April Glazer MSNBC had a story a month or two ago now about how Bill Gates has been through like these multiple layers of shell companies buying up a ton of farmland throughout the United States 
just accruing massive amounts of farmland. Um, and it's like, why? Why would why would Bill Gates have an interest <laughs> in this farmland? And yeah, it wasn't, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Boy, nothing. There's no good answers to that question. <laughs> yeah. Why Bill Gates would want to accumulate massive amounts of farmland throughout the U.S. But as uh, as as Frazier's reporting also kind of throws in context in in terms of like precision agriculture and the the massive kind of uptick of these big um, computational systems and data systems in the the, the management and operation of farming. Uh, Microsoft has been making a big play in this. These big, yeah, you know, these big infrastructure companies um, have a big, uh, you know, have a big stake to to win um, through this by providing the that that computational and data infrastructure that all farming will have to be built on. Right? They they by owning the server farms, they will own the the food farms. Yeah, one dangerous thing or one thing to think about or that maybe isn't thought about also is like this digitization or this privatization by digitization also not only creates and like you know privatization because they're the only ones who hold the infrastructure but then they become the only avenues in which um human beings can actually interact with it because if you privatize it then by what right does a uh, citizen have to look at the data right and that goes and that's especially concerning when it deals with food, right? And the production of food and uh, the supply chains of food, right? And the, the quality of life for farmers, right? Uh, it, is a, it is incredibly concerning if now the only way you can really look at this data, the only way you can contribute to it, the only way you can look at the algorithms or the software code or the sensors, right? Or the computational models, right? All of that. The only, if the only way you can do it is by uh, working for the company, right? Or presumably signing a, a Byzantine um, uh, non-disclosure uh, form or some other sort of uh, barrier impediment that makes it impossible for any real, you know, public oversight or democratic control of something as basic to humanity as it's fucking food. Yeah, and, and you know, and we should say up front as well, right? We're not, we don't have some romanticized view of you know farming happens through some you know small landholders who are farming food and you know some you know or or some some traditional sense of you know like a uh you know a, a family farm with a you know a male household you know led by the the man of the house and you know all of this like little house on the prairie shit right like no farming is like a highly industrialized thing um but what we are seeing here is not only that in on top of that industrialization is a digitalization of it, which brings in uh, a lot of new new actors, right? Uh, a lot of new interest, uh, a lot of new technologies that are being used to further dispossess people of uh, information, uh, control, you know, the value produced by, uh, by farms and the food, right? I mean, it's just as you just said, Ed, right? It's like, you know, no, it, it's not that like, oh, this is a huge revolution that, you know, is upending some like idyllic vision of how farming operates, but it is uh, a, a huge step in terms of who controls uh, the food production system, right? And it, it, it's not only that it's further re-entrenching Monsanto's control over food production in new ways, right? And we'll get into this with the idea of data grabbing, um, but it's also bringing in 
companies like Microsoft into the um, the ag tech sector as well, right? Giving them a huge stake in it. You know, and I think also one of the things that this kind of lines up with what we've been talking about is when you're when you're thinking through the way that technology is invoked, right? A lot of times, the way the technology is invoked into is to avoid thinking about the the actual political content or the actual policy move that's going on, right? Because if it's digital, if it's technological, it's not so much that it is, it's new, right? It's not following the old track, right? So a data grab is not a land grab. It's an optimization of the underlying asset so that it can um, reach productive yields that have as yet, as of yet been unrealized or some bullshit, you know? Like it's not, it's not so much that they are, um, you know, privatizing something and hoarding and concentrating the gains of it, right? It's that they're, perpetually rolling out new ways in which you can access it on your own time or on your own, on your own um, terms, right? And renting, right, as, as, as a good example of this, right, where the technology is privatizing various avenues of your life, right? Whether it's transportation, whether it's living, whether it's consuming, and it's not actually that it's privatizing them, it's actually that you don't need access to them all the time. And, and so it'd be more convenient to have all of them as market transactions so that when you need them, you pay into them. And when you don't, you don't, right? And if that means that they're slightly more expensive, it's slightly more expensive for you to go to the store, it's slightly more expensive for you to, for to go to downtown, then so be it because you, you know, you were living willy nilly, but everyone was, was worse off because something was public instead of private, right? And so I think, you know, that in that way, right, this land grab framework is really interesting, right? Because it's all, it, it, in, it kind of touches on some of the things that I think get missed in discussions of Silicon Valley, right? Whether, you know, we do, we, you know, we and everyone else, I think, focuses on specifically the firms, large firms and some of their contracts with the government agencies, right? But also not thinking about maybe how, um, because, or I think because there's been such a good job done by Silicon Valley and done by a lot of the actors that stand to benefit, like investors and VCs, of, of us not thinking about data as a public good, right? As the internet or as network, computer networks as like, you know, public utilities. Um, we're not thinking of these things as grabs or as privatizations or enclosures. We're thinking of them as like, the, the theological endpoint of this technological development. But with land, you can't really do that, right? With land, this is an enclosure, right? Or this is like a very obvious seize of um, dispossession. This is a, ve- a very obvious attempt, right? To come in and consolidate control of or, or gain new rights or force the seeding of ex- uh, pre-existing rights. And so it has to get masked in this language of optimization, of upgrading, of modernization, right? Uh, and, and, and that is... One really interesting and, and, and great thing about this article, right? Focusing on using land and agriculture, things that were, like you said, these trends have been going on for decades, but also like this is something that we need to look at because it's going on right now. And it, it can, if we read through it, provide insights that help us also go back and, and with clear eyes about what Silicon Valley is doing to the things that we want public. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I find this framework of the data grab really instructive. Um, you know, not just in in agriculture, but beyond. I mean, this was also like like this really uh, influenced my you know my work on the Internet of Landlords, right? This kind of like rentierism that is so rampant and such a core part of like the the business models and the the you know technological design um, put forth by these companies is that a lot of it really does harken back to. Uh, you know, o- old forms of 
of of uh, yeah dispossession and enclosure of landed property. Um, you know, the or or that that optimization of uh, of of unvalorized assets, right? <laughs> Whether it's 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 your couch on Airbnb or your car, your front seat in Uber, or you know the the cows in your farm, right? Like all of these things are cast as unvalorized assets that, through the power of data, uh, can be fully made. Uh, and realized into their their best possible self, and and so I mean just to kind of define what Fraser means by data grabbing, right? I think it's also important to note that you know data is uh, you know it's a crucial input and output of these precision agriculture systems, right? Like um, Fraser notes that uh, even something like robotic milking um, generates about 120 variables per cow per day, um, you know, including uh, each cow's movements, uh, the feed it's being, you know, being distributed, the milk being produced, the quality of the milk, the temperature of the milk and of the cows, um, every, every, every time the cow coughs, right? Like all of this stuff is data that's being produced about each cow every single day. Now that that that's you know multiply that by the the millions and bi- millions or billions of cows on the planet and you know all of a sudden that's a lot of data about cows right um, and that's ju- that's only cows and so like the the amount of data here is just exploding right and that date you know as 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 good Team K listeners know, uh, you know, data is capital, right? Data is the primary capital of all these systems. Um, and, and so as Frazier calls it, right, the data grab is a crucial step in a broader, persistent, and pervasive process whereby the activities of all customers and networks of social relations generate data with a possible exchange value greater than the sum of its individual parts, yet never receive their share of that value. Gaining control of data can, but will not necessarily yield profit, right? And and so, the 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 as the idea of the data grab is that um, you know the 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 owners of these farms, especially in the global south, right? You know where it is, you know farms do tend to be owned. Um, you know, still at industrial scales, but you know, it's not, it's not like Monsanto is owning farms. It's not like Microsoft is owning the farms. What they are doing is they're, uh, you know, leasing the innovations, um, that have become necessary, uh, or at least sold as necessary for these farms to operate, but also to operate in a sense of, uh, of like to comply with, uh, larger standards set forth by, um, for example, like the, the EU, right? So like, you know, Frazier talks about how, uh, you know, there's all these like um, safety standards from the European Union that, you know, if you want to sell your 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 product that's sold in Brazil, for example, you want to sell like soybeans in Brazil um, in, in the European market, then you have to comply with all kinds of standards um, set forth by the European Union. And how do you how do you show that you've complied with these standards? Well, that's where precision agriculture comes in, right? Um, Frazier talks about how like, you know, the uh, you know, precision agriculture products and services are already common in some parts of the bifurcated global south, especially on large scale farms with capital intensive export export-oriented subsectors, right? So large farms in the global south that have export as their their main kind of business models. Um, But 
to comply with these these big standards, that's when a company like Monsanto steps in and says, "All right, well, we'll pro- we'll provide you with a bunch of you know precision agriculture systems. Not only are you going to produce more soybeans than you've ever produced before, you know, you'll have greater yield, but you'll also have uh, you know all this data that can show that you've complied with safety standards." Okay, I mean that's great. I want my food to be safe, right? I want my food to be, uh, you know, plentiful uh, and affordable and safe to eat. But, but, <laughs> but <laughs> the data is the business model here, right? It's not just that Monsanto's like, all right, you know, we'll sell you these, yeah, really capital-intensive technologies, you know, the the tractors, the system sensors, the 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 drone-operated, you know. Uh, GPS and, 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 and territorial mapping and, you know, all of this stuff, but also, oh, by the way, we're going to own all the data that's produced by these, by these, these machines as well, right? We're just leasing you the operation of the machine. Mm -hmm. We collect all the data. We get to own all the data that comes from these machines. And therefore what we get to do is move that data offshore to be processed, aggregated, used in our own systems. And then we will also repackage it and sell it to Microsoft or to Amazon or to whatever other third party might have an interest in this data um, so that they can use it uh, for their own goods. And who's left out of all these transactions? The Brazilian soybean farmers, right? They're, they're, They're left out of all that value. They're left out of all those transactions, even though that data was created on their farm uh, through their hard work of actually growing and producing the food, that that that's these data grabs that um you know that Fraser is talking about here that is largely you know it, it it's become another avenue um but in the global south in particular of these big massive ag tech companies like Monsanto to step in and find another way to dispossess farmers of the value they produce to keep them under the thumb of these companies, right? It's not only that you now have, uh, that you grow seeds with a Terminator gene in them, right? So you can't actually, uh, so you can't save the seeds and, and replant them in the future. You have to buy seeds again from Monsanto. So it's not only this like um, total control of the of the biotech sphere uh, or side of farming. Now there's also total control of the digital and data side of farming as well. And it's also really interesting, you know, um, Fraser talks about, uh, you know, what that might look like in the global north, right? And there's this quote that he has from the director of digital solutions, Lane Arthur, uh, at the John Deere's Intelligent Solutions Group, that I think is really interesting about and kind of sheds light into, like, the language, right, that is used to dress it up. And, you know, Lane Arthur says, precision agriculture is about getting more from each decision, each job that goes into growing the food we eat. The foundation of that is highly automated farming machines guided by software, GPS technology, and satellites. With sub-inch accuracy, farmers control the precise placement of seeds and chemicals. They spray precisely the right amount of fertilizer and harvest precisely. Sensors and IoT make those things possible. But if you kind of step back and really think about what is being said here, right, and as what you already laid out, uh, Jathan, we know that 
um, the business model of these things is one that you're leasing most of that equipment. You're unable to repair it yourself. You you're unable to really afford to own it. And instead, what you're doing is you you know you're and and on top of that, what you're also doing is you're likely taking out huge credit, right, to get access to some of the seed or the crop. You can't store the seed, right? And if you do, you you know you're fucked because they'll you know, sue you into bankruptcy. And even if you don't, they'll sue you into bankruptcy likely, right? You know, what ends up being pitched as a as a way for you to have control over the farming process and the way for us to reap the benefits of that farming process is really w- multiple uh, gates at which the companies can say, are you doing this or that? Are you giving us this or that before you pass through? Are you using our seeds? All right. Are you using our seeds in exactly the way that we express? Are you using the seeds in the fertilizer that we uh, say you must? Are you using the seeds in the fertilizer that we say that you must in the way that you must, right? And are you an, are you fucking with the sensors and the machinery that we give you and that we say that you must use in these precise ways? And are you replacing them on the schedules that we say that you must replace them on, right? So it, it, in reality, right, it also, it, the precision agriculture and the data grab in the global north or pitched as a sort of language of giving you more control. And in the global south, pitched as a way of giving you more ability to be incredibly productive, right? But in the reality, what they're doing is just introducing a bunch of points at which the company can great have ex- can extract more from the places that are producing more and control more from the places where the farmers are being told that they're inefficiencies, right? Or that they're um, antedated or antiquated uh, methods of farming and harvesting, right? And I think that that's really like another framework that's important here. It's a data grab, but that's also like the, the erecting of all these gates and all these uh, these batters, uh, these barriers and these walls and these fetters you have to pass through and that, by erecting these gates and bottlenecking the, the the actions possible before you, you can extract even more from a worker and even more from a farmer and even more from their crop than you would before. And so in reality, it's more like precise extraction, right? Versus like actual precise production. That's exactly right. Yeah. This precision extraction is built on the data grabbing, which is itself built on this this digital enclosure, right? It, no, that's exactly right. I mean, it, it all comes it all comes down to control, right? It's control systems on top of control mm-hmm. systems. Yeah, I mean, everything you just laid out, all of a sudden these farmers start sounding a lot more like tenant farmers um, of, of, of some kind of, uh, uh, you know, internet of landlords uh, someone, right. you know, uh, but, but, someone you know, all, <laughs> all of a sudden like monsanto starts sounding a lot more like a feudal lord dictating how its tenant farmers um operate but doing so through the soft veneer and the soft power of uh digital technology and through the ideologies of yield and optimization and efficiency <laughs> You know, we can see this uh, this like big pivot that's going on right now. Um, you know, through smart farming uh, is being reflected as Fraser lays out uh, in a uh, article that just came out uh, about a month ago in the Journal of Rural Studies. 
Um, and yeah, I should also mention all this will be in the episode description, but you know, the data grabbing piece from 2018 was in the journal of peasant studies. Um, and he just had a piece that came out in the journal of rural studies, looking at this, uh, this kind of reconfiguration of innovation and in smart farming. And he talks about how, um, these big giant agricultural technology providers and these trans agricultural transnational corporations, um, are establishing strategic positions within the broader digital economy, as he puts it, right? Uh, and, and he uses Monsanto, which, as I mentioned before, right, is now owned by Bayer, um, it, you know, its own, uh, you know, a big pharma <laughs> company, uh, you know, it's all just conglomerates, right? Conglomerates on top of conglomerates. It's like, you know, it truly does feel like um, you know, I'm thinking of like Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars trilogy, right? Where it's like, there's like, you know, five transnationals, um, in the world and they just control everything, right? Um, through these like big mergers and acquisitions and creating these conglomerates on top of conglomerates. And, and, uh, and it, it really, you know, you start looking at the system of how it op of how like business organization now, and it starts feeling a lot like that. But as, a uh, as Frazier lays out, right, um, this, this strategy entails the mass collection of farm data through sensors attached to everything from tractors to water sources. All the data is fed through a digital platform set up by a service provider whose algorithms display conditions on the farms and make specific recommendations. But to create, but to, to do that precision extraction of that value, requires them to uh, do things like Monsanto has bought startups such as a startup called Precision Farming for $210 million in 2012. In 2013, they bought a company called Climate Corp, which come on. Yeah. <laughs> Climate Corp. They bought this company for almost a billion dollars. Um, and all of this is a way of adapting uh, and building its expertise and its abilities for this more digital revolution-oriented business strategy, right? For building these software platforms through the acquisition and investment in the technologies needed to actually gather and study this massive amount of data that they are grabbing and pooling from these farms um, all over the world, uh, and 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 this this is replicated as well in a simple fact that uh, Monsanto has completely retooled its employees um, and increased its data science team. From in 2017, they had 200 people on their data science team, and in 2020, that had gone up to 500 people on their data science team. Right, 150% increase of people in their data in, in in their internal data science team, really showing that like this is what this is where the money is. This is what they see themselves as. Right, they no longer see themselves as a uh, Monsanto themselves says right. We're moving from an agricultural biotechnology company into a data science-driven organization, and you hear that same kind of shit—that same kind of shit happening, and that those same kind of statements being made by like every company now, right? I remember like the CEO of Ford Motors said only a couple years ago that data is our business model, right? Yes, we still make vehicles, but. Uh, as the CEO of Ford said as well, a car is a computer on wheels. It's bullshit. Right? <laughs> Absolute bullshit. Cars are 
a car is a steel death cage, you know, <laughs> a, a flying fucking bullet, a slow flying fucking bullet. That's what, it, you know, it's also, it, it's like, you know, my weekly uh, Morozov quote, but, uh, you know, Morozov talked about how one of the bet, one of the, one of the real indicators that nothing is wrong in our economy and that everything is going great is the fact that since the great recession happened, most of the growth in companies and most of the recovery, right, um, has happened almost exclusively in within the domains of the tech companies. And that a growing number of companies that are not tech companies are calling themselves tech companies. That a growing number of those tech companies are getting financed by gluts of capital because of how shitty the recovery is. It's really good to hear that a car company, one of the largest car companies, is calling itself a tech company and saying that actually we make computers and we've made computers this whole time. (laughs) Just now now we are deciding, you know, we thought that capital is capital, but really data is capital now. And and data is our real production input. Mm -hmm. And and this is bearing out on Wall Street as well, right? I mean, like, maybe we'll we'll wrap up the episode with this quote, um, just as as a way to say there's a lot more to dive into this, which we will on the premium episode, but like in, in a piece, um, in another journal article by Emily Duncan and colleagues looking at the, uh, the discourses of innovation and precision agriculture in the journal of agriculture and human values. Um, I pulled this quote. That's just so revealing of this whole fucking bullshit around uh, everybody is pivoting to being a tech company. Why? Because that's where the money is. That's where the finance is. That's where the data capital is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so by 2025, uh, farm management platforms <laughs> are alone expected to be a $1.5 billion market in the United States. Looking even further out, uh, Goldman Sachs, friend of the show, Goldman Sachs, <laughs> <laughs> has predicted that by 2050, so in 30 years, a $240 billion farm tech global market would increase crop yields by 70%. And as they say, it would add to agriculture's long history of holding off a Malthusian crisis, right? <laughs> Large asterisk. Um Read down to the bottom of the page, 70% after the global devastation of food production because of climate change, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. The, 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 I mean, also, also, when you hear people start talking about Malthusian crises, yeah. reach for you, your, reach you for have your like some klaxons go off in your yeah. head. Yeah, that's, that's alarm bells because what, what, what? Malthusian crisis is a dog whistle for is overpopulation, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That, that we are overpopulated and therefore, um, you know, we will stave off that crisis of overpopulation through a, uh, a, a very considered strategy of precision agriculture and also asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Uh, vaccine apartheid, right. climate exterminationism, right. um, all of these things that will also uh, stave off the Malthusian crises by reducing the number of mouths to feed. Yeah, like Jeremy was saying, you know, I think Goldman Sachs is trying to tell us that Dune is actually going to be really good and that, uh, you know, it's going to be a great world to live on where you have to wear still suits to save all the water and the, and the moisture that your body produces and turn that into water. Right, and where nothing can grow, but what does grow is uh, owned by Monsanto uh, or Climate Core 
or whatever the fuck else uh, Monsanto Bayer decides to spit out from its conglomerate, right? I mean, this is it's also um, it's also really interesting that you know, and this we'll talk more about this in the um, in the uh, premium episode, right? But it's you know the smart farming and this precision agriculture business is also like, and I think connected to other ideas that we've talked about. Um, a line of technological development and innovation that really isn't like objectively the best way to improve food production. Uh, it's really just the way to improve capitalist, you know, our capital intensive food production, right? And factory farming of a certain sort and of like exhaustive uh, grain farming of, an, of a specific sort, right? And of like global trade of foods that may or may not be growing or, uh, at, at, at sustainable levels, right? It's not actually asking like, hey, hey, maybe <laughs> as radical as it sounds, maybe there are some foods that uh, are such a pain in the ass ecologically that they should not be like offered on a global market at all times in the year or, you know, or accessible more or less to everybody in the year, right? It's not actually a real technology. It's not using the t- a technology to really do some real thinking or or, or disruption or rearrangement of how foods are produced all this doing is reaffirming and reifying the you know capital flows as they are right now so that you can make your money responsibly right and you can grow and accumulate responsibly and that everything continues on and nothing has to change there has to, there's no discomfort entered there's no uh, real shift in your life uh, your life standard the type of food that you can eat or the type of uh, diversity of foods that are available to you at a market right even if you'll waste even if 50% of them are wasted from you know harvest to uh, transportation into these silos or to the supermarkets and another 50% are wasted at the supermarket and or another 50% like you know in the home where they're not even eaten or where they are eaten but not fully on the plate and then thrown away i mean like forget all that what we're here for is making sure that we can just make more without asking like what should we make more of and how should we make more of and what should we make less of and why exactly exactly Cap- capitalism has one hammer to every problem and that that hammer is production right mm-hmm. i mean we have known for decades decades and decades that f- food shortages is not a problem of production but a problem of distribution mm-hmm. but there is no more dirty word for these companies than distribution mm-hmm. it's all about production no 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 the problem is more 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 production right and 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 what precision agriculture is is you know using the rhetoric of food production to actually provide a system of data production the real capital here the real capital mm-hmm. um, and that's why goldman sachs is is you know talking about how this is going to be a huge market why this is something that you know uh, that is worth investing in why the returns on investment are going to be massive why this is going to stave off the malthusian crisis right you know, is because what they see is production and therefore they see they they got dollar symbols in their eyes right is this going to solve the problems of distribution stay tuned for the premium episode <laughs> later this week to find the answer to that question <laughs> so with that uh i want we're going to wrap up the episode i want to thank y'all again for joining us um here at the beginning of tmk sweeps month um, we've got, as we talked about at the top of the show, we've got so much great shit planned for this, this month and moving forward. 
happy to have y'all along on the journey. So please subscribe at patreon.com slash thismachinekills so you don't miss uh, any any of this hard-hitting analysis so you can get it all in your ears. Uh, so until then, later. 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 Oh